Hello, and welcome to another episode of Gaming Couch, where we sit back and talk about video games, board games, card games, and the like. So pull up a chair, put your feet up, let's have a good time. Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, goddamn, it's humid out. Like, it's not that hot, but it's humid, so you get this weird mix of not exactly sodium from the heat, but just feeling disgusting from the humidity. Summer's a weird time. Anyway, let's just uh, let's talk review stuff because Hot Damn has been a great week for a number of things. First off, I just want to start with like a three-minute talk about what CTR has been up to, Nitrofueled. They're doing a lot of things right, in my opinion. Like, the Grand Prix came out July 3rd, and it's that kind of stuff that's going to keep the game alive. We have an entire month to get all this really cool unlockable stuff through new content with a bunch of different challenges. So, like, they have daily challenges that refresh every day. They have weekly challenges for every week. And then they have, like, the big Grand Prix and Pro challenges that go for the entire month. So even though you need a lot of Nitro to get certain unlocks, it doesn't get too stale. Like, it's kind of like a randomizer. Like, the yesterday's daily challenge was get 20 crystals in a crystal grab match playing as a certain three characters. Like... It was Pinstripe, Papu Papu, and like one other. And then today's daily challenge was do the same thing, get 20 crystals, but play as Pura, Polar, or Ripperoo. Like, okay, so you just change up the characters, but a similar base. But there's other like unique things. Like the one challenge was get a platinum on Crass Cove, which no, I'm not doing that. There was another one of like race Coco Park and beat it under two minutes and five seconds. Fairly easy. So there's a bunch of like that little cool stuff goes up every day. There's what they call quick challenges, which are the same five challenges for every day. Do a race, do an online race, do a time trial, modify your cart, and there's one other which I can't remember, so it's like you're guaranteed 500 Nitro every day. All right, that's pretty cool. And certain cart things you unlock from the Nitro challenges, like certain bodies, characters, and wheels and stuff like that, give you additional Nitro boost. So instead of getting 100 Nitro, you can get, you know, 20% boost, you get 120 Nitro. It's all like little nice things that is keeping the game alive. And with the introduction of new characters, where its stats are similar to the other characters, it's simply just like, you want to play as this skin or that skin. I like it all. Like it, it helps It helps with the game. Like Instead of it just being the same thing over and over again, we now have an entire month of various things to do, and then next month we'll have another set of things to do for new unlockables. My only question is... Like, I unlocked Tana, which is... I love that she put her. they put her in the game. I love her character. I love her attitude. It's amazing. I wonder if I don't get the Motorsport Tana skin, which you need to complete, like, everything to get it. You need to get a lot of Nitro to get it. Will it be on sale in the pit stop? Or will it just be one of those, you had your shot and you missed it kind of thing? That's what I'm curious about. Because there's a couple of, like, unique things that... You only can unlock through Nitro. So that I'm intrigued to see what they do in a month for that. Because I really want the Motorsport skin. But it, it's going to take a lot of time. And like some of the tar challenges are tough. Like do two laps, or not two laps, but do two back-to-back races on Hot Air Speedway. Claiming first place without ever falling off. Okay, so you win two races in a row back-to-back. That's not too hard. Hot Air Skyway, which is like the Rainbow Road curse of CTR trying not to fall off on that track is ridiculous, especially when I do back to back. 
it is a really, really hard challenge. And that's even like when you're trying to cheese it. Like some of the challenges basically say do this on an online match. If it doesn't say you can do it, if it doesn't say don't do it on an online match, so do Hot Air Speedway with computer set to easy. I did that and I was still like stressing a little bit. Like, yeah, I was able to take it easy, but it was still stressful and I haven't done it yet. Like I I had to restart once or twice, so I'll revisit it later. But that's what I like is that you can do a number of things offline, either to cheese it because it's a hard challenge, or let's just say you don't have online multiplayer. Like you're not paying for the membership. As long as you're connected to the server regardless and you have internet access, you have access to all the challenges and stuff. And you can do a majority of them offline. So that's really nice. Heck, you can do like you versus your friend in battle mode to complete some of the challenges or you versus one AI to get some of the challenges done. So that's the thing. It's just giving you options, giving you ways to play and things like that. So the Grand Prix stuff for NetroCart, it's it's an okay in my book. It's a a good positive check. Now the two big things we're talking about today, I picked up two games this past week, both of them very phenomenal, both of them board games, and I recommend both of them for vastly different reasons. So the first one I picked up is Dice Forge. Now, some of you might know of Dice Forge from the research I was doing. I was kind of poking around a bit. It was a 2017 release, so it's about two years old. And they actually had an expansion go out February 2019, which I didn't know about. So I kind of want to get it, Dice Forge Rebellion. Uh, the issue was, when I was looking around, the main website of the, I guess it was the company that made the game, wasn't working. So I don't know if the company went out of business, went off the grid, I don't know. But the only stuff I found about Dice Forge was through Board Game Geek and then on sale at like Amazon and stuff like that. Hell, if you've heard of the Alamo Drafthouse Theater, they have like two or three locations across the United States. That's where I found the game. <laughs> I bought the game at a, at a movie theater, not even at like a Target. So it's a very obscure game, but it's, a, it's definitely worth getting. I mean, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy a lot of things like on Amazon. So if you shop online, you can get it. It's totally worth picking up the concept behind dice forge is exactly what the name implies you're messing with dice so instead of having some crazy cool mechanics about the game itself the game focuses on you crafting a six-sided die exactly the way you want to so a breakdown of like the rules the the rule book when i first looked at it was overwhelming because instead of doing like a book or something like that they essentially have like a small poster size rule sheet that's double-sided and folded in half so everything's printed on it front and back which my god if you first open the game is a mouthful and it's a lot to take in so i actually i played with my niece her and i sat down and watched a youtube video of just the setup and then everything made sense after that so the basic concept of dice forge is you're trying to get victory points to be the winner whoever's most victory points at the end of nine or ten rounds is crowned winner so how do you do that well there are two things you can do you can go to the this grounds with all these different like mythological creatures like cyclops hydra tritons cerberus stuff like that and you don't fight them instead they cost a certain amount of points of sun or moonstones and when you buy them you take the card for yourself and most of them, not all of them, most of them give you victory points just from getting the card, and then like additional effects on top of that. The other way you can get victory points is on your die itself, 
you can roll and get victory points off of that, which is very helpful. So everyone starts the same way. You start with two dice the same way. One die has five sides, gives you one gold, and one side gives you a sun, one sun uh, stone. The other die is four gold, one moonstone, and two victory points. So everyone starts with those two die, and everyone gets two die on their character. And then player one starts with three gold, player two, two gold, player three, one gold, and player four gets nothing. That's if you do four players. But the rule's still the same, like you start at three and then just chip away. And so rounds are real quick and easy. Everyone rolls their die, and whatever the die lands on, if it lands face up with one gold and two victory points, that's what you get. You get one gold and two victory points. Woohoo. So let's say you're player one. You rolled the die, you got that one gold and two victory on your first turn. So you have two victory and now four gold to start. Well, you can't spend the sun and moon because you don't have any, so you can't go out and get a card for some creature. So instead, you can go to the temple grounds. And the temple grounds has all these other die faces that you can purchase through gold. So like for four gold, you can buy a die face that gives you six gold if you roll it. Or you can spend, I think it's three, and get a sunstone, one sunstone, dice face, stuff like that. And then they have a lot of like unique stuff. So like there's dice face that says, if you roll this, you choose two victory or three gold. If you roll this, you get one gold, one sunstone, one moonstone, one victory point. If you roll this, you get to choose between one sun, one moon, or one gold. Like... They have a lot of really unique dice face that you can buy. And when you buy one of these dice face, you rip it off. Like a previous one, you take off of the die, and they say forge, you know, apply the new one. And that's a permanent effect. Like, you can't replace things. Like, let's say you removed that one moon for whatever reason, and you decide to lay it down the road. Oh, wait, I need to actually put that moon back on. No, you can't reforge once you've taken off. You have to then just rebuy one moon and reforge it. You have to spend the gold there and everything. So it comes down to a lot of strategy. Just what should I buy and when should I buy it? On the flip side, the cards. Eventually you get some sun, eventually you get some moon just from rolling. Okay, let me buy a certain... Like, this is one of my favorite is this mask. That's worth five moon. So what's so cool about this mask? Well, victory points, obviously. But then there's a lot of unique die faces that you can only get through claiming certain cards so this mask gives you a times three die face so when you get the card you immediately take that you don't have to pay for it, it just it gives it to you from the card and you have to put it on when you die it doesn't matter which one but you have to immediately forge it on and from here on out when you roll if you roll that times three what it does is it takes whatever's on your second die so let's say you rolled three gold on your second die now you times that by three you get nine gold it's a really cool effect. I mean, you only have a one in six shot on one of your die of getting it, but if you buy multiple of it, because you can pick up the same cards multiple times, you could make a die that has like two or three dice face with a times three. You're putting a lot of pressure on the other die to roll something good to multiply it by three. But I like it. I think it's it's pretty cool, and it brings in that strategy. Like, do you go for the times three unique die face? Because there's a limit to the amount of dice face. Like, everything only has one to four copies depending on it. There's another one you can get, which is a boat that you get, and it gives you, when you roll this, you immediately buy a dice face from the temple, but at a minus two gold discount. If you roll that with the times three, it's a minus six gold discount, so you can get some really good stuff for free, which is awesome. And there's a couple of like, neat things, like if you roll this, you copy the effect of another opponent's die face. So if your opponent rolls, you know, 
plus one to everything and you roll the question mark on your die, you can copy that and get the plus one to everything also. So your opponents have really good dice. Maybe you grab the portal so you can get the, you know, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a choose your opponent's die kind of thing, which is really nice. So now you're just forging the dice the way you want, so at the end of the game you have as much victory points as possible. And some of the cards, like the Minotaur, say your opponent has to roll their dice and lose whatever it is that shows on the dice. So you can take their really powerful dice and use it against them. It only happens once, but it can make or break your game. So, yes, there are odds. There are odds the dice are like, what am I going to roll this turn? However, you get to push it the way you want. Like, I want to get more gold, so I build gold. I want to get more moon, so I buy some moon faces. I want to get more gimmicks. Like me, I'm a gimmick guy. I like getting the times three, and I like getting like the choose ones, like choose three gold or choose two victory points. So I have a lot of options. Like if I roll a times three with the choose, it's either if I need six, if I need nine gold right now to buy a really good dice face, boom, nine gold. Otherwise, six victory points. I can't complain about that. That's really nice. Just keep doing this, keep doing this, keep doing this, and get the amount to get the most victory points by the end. That's it. So the game is well made in that manner where everything has a place. Like even when you're packing it up, you can leave all the dice faces in the temple grounds. Like it shows you how to set it up. And you can slide it into a sleeve that keeps it all in place and just put it in the box. The way the box is built, they have a plastic just kind of like mold in there. And everything has a place. Like the pawns go in a certain place. Each the cards are put in certain places like divvied up into certain decks. You know, you can put all the dice that you've created along the side so everyone starts with the proper dice in the beginning without having to reforge them. It's it's really, really cool because you don't have to worry about the struggles of putting everything back in the damn box. Like, the box is built to hold everything, which is an A-plus for me. Like, they thought of everything, except for the rules being a little, like, sloppy, in my opinion, in terms of, like, trying to understand it at first because you just it's a lot to read right away that's kind of in your face instead of, like, in small bits. They thought of everything in terms of gameplay and even cleanup. Now, the last note on gameplay is the flexibility of the game. They have technically four different decks. There's a sun deck, a moon deck, because buying with sun stones or moon stones, but there's also a version of the sun and moon decks with little blue dots. Now, what they recommend is you start the game, like your first play time playing, using only the cards with the little blue dots. Because, like, they're not as gimmicky, they're easier to understand, something like that, you know? And then the other decks doesn't have the blue dots, which is more complex. So you can bring those in later. So you could play a game where you randomly decide what cards you use. Like, do we use only blue dots? Do we use not blue dots? Do we mix the two? And you only can put, they'd say, you can only put amount of cards down equals the number of players playing. So when it's a two-player game, you only have two of each type of card in a section. So you only buy something from an island twice. Why not make it three in one time, you know? Even though you have two players, maybe you have you can buy it three times. Or, let's say, for the four moon section, you have both dot and non-dot cards. You have choices of what to buy from there. The one rule is, when you're playing with less people, like when you're only playing with two players, you're supposed to remove two dice faces from each pool in the temple grounds randomly. Well, the one time me and my niece play, we're like, why not? Why not just leave it and get more options? Like, it's supposed to be scarcity of resources because of fewer players, but it was kind of fun having all these cool different options and not being limited. So with all these different adaptations you can do to the rules, 
on top of just a very straightforward game of roll dice and buy things, it can be an incredibly fun game. It can be a little rough for first-time players trying to figure it out, but luckily, packed with the box, they have a kind of quick guide of what it looks like to play your turn, and on the flip side of that, they have a description of what every single card does. So on the card is just printed a picture of what you can do with it, and if you're not sure what the picture means, boom, quick reference, it tells you everything, which is mm, amazing. So I would highly recommend at least doing some research on it. Like my niece and I, we've played the game a lot. We played it like two or three times a day we bought it, and then like once or twice every day afterwards we've been playing it because she's visiting me right now. And it's it's always fun. Like we always have a good time. We're always finding a new way to play the game. So you get your money's worth because there's plenty of replay value to it. And it's two to four players, so you can play with a small group, real easy. It can take it could take some time. Like it comes down to strategy of like should I buy this dice face now so my opponent doesn't buy it? Like, it might not be the greatest for me, but now my opponent doesn't get it. Because, again, you, you're trying to play those odds. You want to have the best odds on your dice, but you also kind of want to mess with your opponents a little bit. That way they don't have the best odds. So it's a bit of luck, but since you can control your luck, you really have to think, you really have to strategize about what it is you want to do with these dice. So like I said, check it out. It's like 40 bucks. In certain locations, depending on if it's like shipping and handling, taxes, if you're buying it in store, buying it online, things like that. So it's around 40 for everything. And the expansion was another like 20 to $30, again, depending on where you get it. Now, for the second game today, for second game review, is a little thing called House of Danger. And it's purely a card game. My god, is it an experience. So apparently this game was built off of a book. It was inspired by a book. I never heard of the book. I never heard of the author. But if House of Danger rings a bell, well, maybe you'd want to look into this because maybe you read the book or you know the author of House of Danger. So House of Danger was released around fall of 2018. I was looking through some forums on BoardGameGeek, there was some talk about it, and people saw like fall 2018, and there was one that said effectively they say July 2018, so somewhere within 2018, the game was released. And it is a choose-your-own-adventure game. Now, for those of you who don't know choose-your-own-adventure, like you've never read a choose-your-own-adventure book, or you never played like a very old, classic, text-based game, choose-your-own-adventure is very simple. You're reading a book. And instead of it being like the end of the chapter, move on to the next chapter, imagine at the end of the chapter, it gave you a choice. And it said, should the main character go through the door or should the main character investigate the noise? And depending on what you chose, it would tell you to hop to a certain page. Think of it like D&D, but without like the really in-depth character classes leveling up in combat mechanics. Like the GM will say what's going on. And ask you, what do you do? And then the story is built off based, what do you decide to do in town? Do you talk to the guards? Do you go to the shopkeep? Do you ask a little old lady on the side of the street about local gossip? Like, the story is built around your choices. Except here, it's more focused on a direct narrative. Because instead of 
a person behind the screen being able to improv or make up the story, there are certain story elements that connect to each other. So the basis of the game is very straightforward and simple. You are a psychic investigator, and you've been having those weird nightmares of this place, and you're not sure what it is. So you talk to some cop buddies, and you end up finding out it's the Marston House, which isn't far from town. And so you decide to go investigate the Marston House. And from there, it's you just trying to survive and figure out what's going on in this place because it is a very bizarre place. Like you're getting psychic premonitions of certain locations. You're meeting really bizarre and strange things. So you're trying to figure all this stuff out. And you're trying to go like deeper and deeper in to find the answers. Now... The game plays through five chapters, so if you wanted to, you could sit down and play through all five chapters in one sitting. Or you can do what me and my niece are. We started up chapter one one day, we immediately played chapter two, and then, you know, she was leaving in three days, so we're like, let's do one chapter a day. So you kind of, like, spread the story out, give us something to do at night before we go to sleep, stuff like that. Like, So it's, it's fun that you can just stop at the end of a chapter and come back later, or just do it all at once. Now, when you're playing through the game, Chapter 1 is pretty straightforward. You take turns. Like, you can do it solo, or you can do it with two people, you can do it with three people, with four people. Just keep the numbers low. Like, I wouldn't go above three, honestly. Because after that, you're getting a lot of people. And it's too many, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen, essentially. It's too many opinions, too many voices. So keep this group small. So the first person to go, I guess, like the first person's turn, for lack of a better term... They read the first story card, and they will continue to read the first story card until it comes up to a decision. And the first decision at the Marson House is, do you climb the fence, or do you look for a hole in the wall for an entrance? You have a discussion. Okay, what should we do? Should we go here, or should we go there? What do we think? When you come up to a decision, the person who read the card finds the next story card, the number at the top, and hands it to the next player. And that person then reads that story card to the decision. Talk about it, move on. So on and so forth. Now, the direction you're given, you know you want to investigate the Marsden House. You're having this weird nightmare of the place. So what's going on? Not only that, but you actually get an image. Like, on the back, you have this There's one game piece, this one cardboard piece that you have in the middle of everybody. And on the one side of it is a really bizarre image that is supposed to be the nightmare the character is having. So you kind of talk about, okay, what do we think of this image? What's good? What's bad? Which, you know, what are some things we should look out for? Yada, yada, yada. And, like, the one thing that stuck out to me and my niece is right in the smack dab middle of the nightmare is this cavalry saber, the sword, which is right in the center. And so, during the first chapter, we came across a statue of a cavalryman, like, in honor of this old general, who was holding his saber out. And I was like, that saber kind of looks like what it was in the dream, like, we should investigate that. And we did. Turns out we got a, we got a pretty cool item out of it, like, investigating the sword. Because that's what you have to do. You are looking for clues. Some of the clues are items that will help you either immediately or at a later time, or just hints. Like at one point we got the hint saying, hey, there's a pretty important person in this location. And then when we had a decision and the decision came up, like the location was on that card, I'm like, like I read the clue again. I'm like, there's someone important there. We should go check that out. And so we did. So the replayability of the game. Because it's a choose-your-own-adventure we are currently going through it at a pretty fast rate. Like, every chapter has a goal. Get into the house, get to the basement, so on and so forth. And when we reach the goal, we decide to keep going. Like, you have the choice to go back 
into the chapter and look for other clues and other items like that. But we just kept pushing forward. We're doing all right. Like we're still in one piece. We got some clues. We got some items. So it's not too bad. But you get to pick this balance of do we go back and look for more? Do we push forward? Because if you go back, the danger increases. As you're exploring the house and you're choosing different options, there's a danger meter. And if things go south, the danger meter increases. So if you have a challenge, you roll a D6 and you have to equal the level of danger or higher. So if it's on a three, you gotta roll a three or higher to succeed at the challenge. And if you fail, the danger meter goes up. And it constantly goes up all the way up to six. At that point, it's like you have to roll a six or higher to win. Otherwise, you're screwed. And should you fail one last time and it reaches the top of the danger meter, it affects your psychic abilities and then restarts. So you have a psychic meter. The higher your psychic meter, the better. So you want danger low, psychic high. Because the higher your psychic meter, you have a chance of finding more clues. You can have premonitions, which is images on the back of cards that you can look at that give you hints of certain locations or other little tips and tricks. So whenever the danger meter fills up and it restarts, you lower your psychic level and it'll keep lowering back to one. And then at that point, you're screwed. Like you're not gonna get any premonitions, nothing. Nothing's gonna work out for you at one. You gotta keep that crap up. So now how do you get past the challenges with rolling the D6? Well, each challenge has a certain icon matched to it. Strength, agility, perception, whatever. So certain items that you find can boost your die number for that challenge to improve your odds. So that cavalry saber we found at the beginning was a plus two on our die roll to any fight. And since we kept the danger pretty low for the most part until we had one really bad roll and we lost the saber, we were automatically succeeding on any fight because we had enough bonus from the saber that it automatically brought up to the minimum danger level, which was great. So it was a great item to find in the beginning. It carried us through almost three whole chapters. It was amazing. So that's like when you have to decide to go back and look at something else or to possibly investigate a dangerous clue, you can get something really good out of it, but it can also bite you in the butt by raising up the danger too much and getting into trouble. You can also die in this game. But dying isn't like the end of the game. If you die, instead it tells you you lose this much on your psychic scale, go back to the previous card. So the game doesn't harshly punish you for exploring. because That's the name of the game. Choose your own adventure. What is it you want to do? And let's say you make it to chapter 5 and then die, and you have to restart the whole thing. Well, that's not fun. You don't want to do that. Also, at that point, you would know what good decisions to make and just do that again. So if you die, just go back to the previous card and keep going. So now you know, okay, let's just avoid that. There's really no story element like behind like psychic energy or anything that I know of that makes like an in-game universe excuse, but we really don't need it. It's totally fine to do in terms of just playing the game and enjoying this adventure. Now we've yet to beat it. Like I said, we're kind of like milking it and taking some time and enjoying the narrative. So I haven't reached the ending yet, but I hear that there are multiple endings. I was reading a description. You can get multiple endings depending on what secrets you uncover and stuff like that. And I already saw that. There was this one point we reached the end of Chapter 3 where if we had a certain item, we could have just gone through this door and get some awesome stuff. But we didn't have the item. We didn't have the clue that could get us through. So instead, we had to take a different route, which ran into a lot of trouble for us. So I could see how the different endings would work. At times, though, some of the, the faults of the game is it can get very linear. As much as you choose your own adventure, there are times where there is no branching path. You'll go like four or five cards in a row without 
making a choice without saying go this way or that. So for example, that moment I just talked about, we didn't have this key card to get through this location. So we had to go this other route. Well, instead of giving us the option to go back because it said, oh, well, the metal door that you walk through closes behind you and locks, so you can't leave. And you can't go through this area because you don't have the key card. Oh, but wait, there's a hole in the ceiling covered by the shadows. You could probably check that out. So it's like, okay, I guess we have to go check that out. Not a big deal. What's up there? Well, then we ran into five challenges in a row. One for each stat. Perception, agility, climbing, strength, and fight. Which was kind of absurd at that point. So like, oh my god, we gotta roll the die again. We gotta roll the die again. We gotta roll the die again. And if you failed the challenge, it said, try again. Like, there, like you just had to keep going until you succeeded. Which... At one point, we failed multiple times, and we were kind of like, oh, my God, can we just finish this? Can we just get to the end? We want, Like, I mean, the ending was kind of funny. We ended up getting encountering a 10-foot-tall guinea pig. Like, the game gets really weird at times. We ended up finding a 10-foot-tall guinea pig, so that was kind of funny. But it was just the, the monotonous of roll it again, roll it again, roll it again, roll it again, roll it again. Like, there was, we weren't deciding what to do. It was just roll the die again. There was no... There's nothing going on. It was just up another challenge. Do this. Up another challenge. Do this. Up. You ran, you walked into a room with a chimpanzee smoking a cigarette and watching TV. It wants to fight you. Okay, roll the die. My God. It, it was... When we got through that, it felt good. We're like, okay, now what can we do? Then we got to decide again and it felt good again because we had to control of the game once again. So at times, it gets a little linear. Which isn't often. Out of the three chapters we've played so far that was the only time it really got linear like at one point it was we read the next story card okay read the next story card and then you had a decision so you had to read like two cards in a row without a decision which wasn't too bad like there was there was a purpose to it there was a story reason behind it like you're walking down this hallway you're swimming through this lake okay that makes sense but doing like six cards in a row with no control was just a horrible experience so ignoring that putting that on the side the game is really fun, and as much as there's multiple endings, and it is you choose your own adventure, because you only make, like, there's only two or three branches at a time, and some of them are dead ends, or just loop back to the main branch, that is, like, to get to the goal, because you have a goal every chapter, you could quickly find out what most of the decisions would be, what most of the clues are, if you play the game enough, because you can play it solo. So I think what would be a really fun way to play this is to give it a D&D twist. Take someone who knows the game. Like, they know the decisions that can be made. They know where the clues are, things like that. Have that person be the narrator. They go behind the DM screen. They have all the story cards out in front of them in order and stuff like that, including all the clues. And the rest of the players are sitting around the table. And you give them just the cardboard play piece that shows, like, your meters. And that's it. And then as the narrator, you narrate, you read each card, you know, put some flavor on it, use a foreboding voice in bad times and like at times of panic, you read fast and loud, you know, give kind of those, those fun little twists. And then when the decision comes up, you describe kind of like the location what the players are looking at and say, where do you go? And then let the players decide and then you read the next card. And if they get a clue, you pass the clue card over the DM screen to the players to let them look at it you know, read the clue card or look at the premonition vision or whatever, and then they hold on to it. So they keep those cards and you keep everything else. 
I I plan to do that at some point. Like after I play through the game once or twice with friends and on my own, I think it'd be a great experience. You know, I'm going to bring it to my school during the year and do that with the kids. Like I'll bring my DM screen and just sit behind the screen and tell the kids, all right, let's do this. Let's do a choose your own adventure. You know, I'll narrate the story and you decide where to go. It could be really fun. It could be a really fun way to play the game in a modified version and keep the game fresh for yourself. Because if you have, like, a group of friends, eventually, yeah, the game will run stale because everyone knows the game. But if you have, you know, colleagues or you work at a school or, you know, you have a club that you go to, stuff like that, like, you know, that have a bunch of people visit, you could always be the narrator. And that way you're part of the game, but you're not making the decisions because you know if it's a good or bad decision, you've played the game. So you take the back seat and just let everyone else enjoy the experience. And then, you know, I take it as a GM. I have fun playing D&D as a GM because I get to just have fun seeing what the players do. You know, see what how they react, what they think, what they decide to do, all that kind of stuff. So House of Danger, you know, definitely. I, I definitely give it a thumbs up. Definitely positive light in my eyes. I think it's worth, like, the... 25 bucks that you would spend on it after shipping like i got on amazon after shipping and handling it was like just under 25 i think it's worth it and it's pretty cool because like instead of it just being standard like card stock that you have for like trading cards and other games that use cards it's on more of like a paper like it's it's this lengthy like book style paper so it has a pretty cool feel to it it's not as durable so i could see definitely getting damage easily over time Otherwise, I like I like the aesthetic of the paper parts and things like that. And you can see the fact you can drop the game and pick it up later. You just have to record what you have at the end of a chapter. So when you start the next chapter, you'll be like, okay, we have these clues. We have these items. Let's go. Let's keep playing. Let's try and figure this out. So I'll drop a link to the Board Game Geek section of both Dice Forge and House of Danger. So you can totally check it out. Again, I recommend both. If you have the money, if you have a gaming group, you're looking for something new, totally check these games out and pick them up to introduce something new because they're both very unique a choose your own adventure that was made last year we haven't seen one of those in full swing in a while and just a game that you get to build your own dice not pick your own dice like there's some games that you build a team that give you certain dice no you you make your own dice which i haven't heard of before so dice forge gives you that house of danger gives you the choose your own adventure and if you don't have ctr yet get it you know, get get CTR. If you have a Switch or an Xbox One or something like that, just pick up CTR. Do yourself a favor. It's it's worth it. If you're not like a Crash fan from the old days of PlayStation 1, it, it's totally worth it. It's a fun game. So I'm going to sign off for now. This was a kind of a quick review of the two games, but I don't want to spoil too much. You know, I gave enough... I feel enough in-depthness to kind of give you that idea of what they're about, and I want you to explore the game for yourself, should you choose to grab it. So, that's all for this week. I wish you all well. Until next time. And, yeah, now I got the Twitter, just hit me up on Twitter, at G underscore C underscore podcast. Sweet and simple. I try and post every day, just a little something something. So take care all, and I hope to hear from you.